Father, I, I would ask that you would enlighten us more in the sower, the seed, and the other parables, the kingdom parables which are listed here in Matthew chapter 13. I pray that you would enlighten us, but also help us, Lord, to have the soil of our hearts cultivated, ready to receive that word, and may it take root. And may you have the desire effect in us and in our lives. And may we not resist you. May we die to ourselves, as Romans 12 says. May we seek after you in all things. So please accomplish these prayers of ours, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 13, we have the sower of the seed, the wheat and the weeds, the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl, and also the net. Now, the parable of the sower, I read through that, and I'm just going to read through it again all the way down through the explanations of it. (coughs) So we'll do that. Verse 1 of chapter 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he scattered the seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has hearts, excuse me, heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with the ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you have seen, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who receives the seed that fell in the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And I gave to you last week, the seed is the word of God, the birds are Satan, the soils is or are the heart. The path, of course, is the hard path. This person has no interest in receiving the words of the gospel. Doesn't want to hear it, is an atheist, just 
ixnay that, don't even talk to me about it, I am done. That is 25% of those who hear the gospel. If you go out, one out of four is going to just not want to hear it, according to this parable. Now, again, I, I need to give this caveat. I don't know if these percentages, these numbers, these fractions are accurate, but they certainly could be. And so we want to keep that in mind. The rocky path is the open heart. The seed germinates, but when persecution comes, well, it just withers away and the person does not exercise their faith and they fall out of fellowship with God, so to speak. And there's a question whether or not they were ever even saved. I have a tendency to think that they weren't even saved. But they did receive the word with gladness, with eagerness. And they even dwelt among the saints for a period of time. That period of time... Just like the next example here, the seed that comes up with the weeds, that period of time can be moments, it can be days, it can be years. We don't know how long that actual time can be. But God tells us there are those two that receive the word, but the word is not fruitful. And by the way, that's the whole goal of planting seed that you might get fruit. So this could also be a parable of the production of fruit, which is the works in the life of the believer. So the soil with the weeds, of course, when the the seed germinates and it comes up, there are the distractions of this life, just things. Now, you know, I, I had a chance, like I said, to be at my son's house yesterday and for the past three days just helping out. And made me recall my life with my children. We were always busy. Always. We had something going on. I would have to adjust work to try to be there and make sure I'm being a good father to the kids. And you get home and you have to take the baths and then you sing them a song or you pray with them or you give them some teaching out of the Bible as they're laying in bed and you talk to them and say prayers and put them good night and then you do some work after that then you finally collapse then you get up really early in the morning before they get you get the picture of what's going on I saw that at my son's house and you know on one hand I'm going oh those poor kids on the other hand, I'm going, <laughs> it's your turn, you know, that, that type of thing. And, and it's kind of a dichotomy that I deal with. But, and, and when the kids say things, like, like I'm going to give you an example. My youngest grandson, I, I, I don't know his age. I think he's like six, five or six. And this kid never stops, never. And he has his own attitude. He is his own boy, let me tell you. And his mom, my daughter-in-law, turned to him, and I was putting together some Ikea furniture there, and, and she goes to him and says, well, Drake, you want to help Papa and Kaylee? Kaylee's my other granddaughter. Put together some furniture? And he's just looking down, and he goes, never. <laughs> okay, never. He, he doesn't want to do that. And, and on the other hand, he wants to play Legos. and put, you know, So all of that, you're just always involved in their lives. And, and it's just great. It's wonderful. So you get busy of the cares of life. And we have a tendency to forget. God, God I'll get with you. I'm busy right now. You know, there's so many things to do. And if we add on top of that hobbies and pursuits on top of work, Well, God really gets pushed out to the side. 
And then there are those who, I got to make money. I got to have my retirement. I got to make sure everything is set up. And they work and work and work. And by the time they get everything saved up, they usually die because they killed themselves in order to get rich to have a nice retirement. And there is no retirement because they killed themselves. You know, and, and the Lord is able to provide for us. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Do not worry about that. The Lord will take care of that if you seek first the kingdom of God. But those people who pursue the money, the wealth, the riches, and the cares of this life, it drags them away and they end up becoming unfruitful when it comes to their relationship with God. Then there's the fourth type, the cultivated soil. The soil that has been prepared how do you prepare your heart to receive the word? What is necessary for the preparation? Now, here, Jesus is talking and he gives us the parable. Then he gives us a little section, a parenthetical section. Then he gives us the explanation. And he basically tells us in that parenthetical thought there, the problem was pride. If you go back and read it, that's what he's talking about. Pride keeps us from receiving God's word. Pride keeps the individual from admitting they're a sinner because everybody wants to think, well, I'm a good person. What does God say about good people? There are none. And he's the only one that is good. And so we want to think ourselves more highly than we ought, Scripture says. And God wants us to have a sober view of ourselves which would drive us to the point of humility. That's where you can receive God's word. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceived. If you know you're nothing, and God says, because of that I'm going to make you something, then you're on good standing. And that's the way God wants us to be. When we read his word and the word says, don't or do, we want to follow those commands whether it's in the imperative mode, like a command, like do this now, or I think this would be a good idea for you to follow this path. We should follow the things that the Lord wants us to follow. So this idea of the seed falling on good ground, falling on bad ground, not germinating or germinating, that's all good, but the goal of throwing the seed is producing fruit. And so we, we need to look at several aspects of this. And there is, I believe, a main meaning to each one of the parables. And then there are subsets of things that it could mean. Or you would meditate on it and go, well, it could also mean this. Like, for instance, the 25% who receive the gospel or get the gospel don't want to hear it. Well, that's like a subset. But the main meaning of the passage is most will not receive the gospel. That's the point. And most being, 75% do not have it in such a way that it lasts their whole life. They will fall away. So this idea of producing fruit, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, this is how important fruit production is to God. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, this is talking about Jesus, he was hungry, seeing a fig tree by the road. He went up to it, found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Now, I'd like to see that, where the tree is a fig tree, nice and healthy. If you've ever seen the leaves, they're bigger than my hand. Instantly, it just, the leaves go down. They turn this 
terrible color of green, then brown, and then they die. And so Jesus was expecting fruit, didn't see it, and the tree got cursed. The next one is Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. It says, Then he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but it did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I use up or why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So every tree or every branch that does not produce fruit, he cuts off. It is no longer abiding in the vine. It is the parable of the sower of the seed, the one who gets choked out by persecution or the one who gets choked out by the cares of this life and the pursuit of riches. It's the same thing. God is interested in having fruit be born to those who receive the gospel. And we will know each other by our fruit. Scripture says that. We will even know false prophets by their fruit. Matthew 7, that we already covered, says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. And, and it's how they act, what they teach. If they're teaching 85% truth and 15% error, that's kind of like, let me put one drop of arsenic in this cup of water. It does no good. You want the pure milk of the word. You want it to be untainted. And so if there's an improper doctrine, the person needs to be called out. And by the way, that pertains to me as well. If I deliver to you some doctrine, if I just started to go way off, you need to come to me and say, hey, I think you're a little way off. And I'll say, really? It's never happened before. Please enlighten me. You know, I, I say that in jest. But it, it, if I'm off, I need to be held to account as well. The Apostle Paul was held to account by the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bereans were more noble than those at Thessalonica, for they examined, the, they received the word with eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So they were testing him. If at any time I get off on a doctrine or a practice, and you see it, you need to come to me and you need to tell me, and hopefully, Lord willing, I'll be humble enough to receive it and say, you know, I was wrong. And I've done that in the past. I have been wrong. It's happened. Believe it or not. I know you doubt that, but it has happened in the past. And so I am willing to do that. I'm willing to be corrected. And everybody needs to be willing to be corrected because we are not perfect. But the false teacher, if you confront the false teacher, they usually, or the false prophet, they become abrasive. They become condescending. They become patronizing to the individual that would seek to bring them correction. And they would say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And belittle that individual. And that's a false prophet. But the, a tree, a good tree, cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And so this idea of being humbled, the word of God, the seed is planting in us or planted in us, it produces fruit. That individual has the humility to receive it and also to receive criticism from others, constructive criticism. If you want to come along with an ad, ad hominem argument, and by the way, ad hominem is where you start calling them names, where instead of dealing with the substance of the argument or the complaint, 
you immediately hop to, oh, you're just a fool. Well, that doesn't address the issue at hand. I may, in fact, be a fool. But is this wrong? Is this behavior wrong, according to Scripture? Or is it right? And like I said, most of the time, if you point that out in a loving manner, people are going to come back, and they're going to call you names. And they're going to take advantage of you as far as your character and, or lack of character, what they think in their eyes. And they are justified in their mind. And the person who delivers the criticism is not justified. You guys follow how that works? I just want to make sure you have that understanding. So believers will be recognized by their fruit. And certainly the fruit that we will have come out is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, are you guys going to be always gentle? No. Okay, I'm going to take a little parenthetical thought here. I have a weakness. I have a weakness in bad customer service. I was at a particular store, which will remain unnamed. But when I went to Ikea, they were terrible. (laughs) And, you know, it was all that was within me to not... Go ballistic. That, that has always been a weakness of mine. I don't know why, but the Lord says, okay, it's your turn to do this again until you get it right. And, you know, I just, oh, I just struggle on the inside. I want to not only attack the, the company, but I want to attack the person because they represent the company. And I want to do the ad hominem thing. I know what it's like. And I had an instance with that last week. I'm not going to go into details, but I am just like you guys. I have my issues. You know, and you can say, Pastor Bill has issues. And I do. I, I have issues. Uh, and so, and it's, it's based in this sense of justice, just doing what is right. You know, especially as a business owner, I, I know what's right and I know what's wrong as far as dealing with the public. And when I get treated in the way that I feel that is inappropriate or wrong, it just gets me. Anyhow, let's digress. So believers will be recognized by their fruit. If I walked into Ikea and I just, I got so upset, I took their computers and just threw them off to the side and you can have this thing back, right? Do you guys remember the uh, old commercial of Discount Tire, the old grandma with the tire throwing it through the window, you know, that time? That's what I wanted to do. And you know, that is not fruit in keeping with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. Yeah, but I did it in Christian love. They need to know what's going on. No, it doesn't work that way. And it's a constant battle for us to act properly. And we know, you know, it's like the anger of man doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. And as I'm ready to just explode, that's what I hear. I go, <laughs> all right, fine. You know, and, and I want to act like a little kid and just stamp my feet and okay just maintain maintain and walk out and we all do this at some point we all do and god tells us look i understand i know you want to act out but it is not in keeping with the life that you have been called to so get a grip is what god tells us bill's version in the bible so with this that you have the parable of the sower of the seed and i just want to do this by the numbers Because, you know, I'm a little analytical when it comes to this stuff. So one out of four people will not receive the gospel according to the parable. Now, again, I need to give a caveat. I don't know that the Lord necessarily wants this to be the main thrust. I don't think it is of the passage. But I don't know that it is not also true. This could be true. 
three quarters of the people of the world are not saved. 75% of the people in this parable do not get saved. One third of the people who attend church are saved. That means two thirds of the people who, and this is overall universal, are not saved. Two thirds. Because why? Because you have two groups that receive the word with eagerness, but they never produce fruit. You have one third that receives the word with eagerness and produce fruit. They would all at some point be inside the church. So as everybody comes into the church and exits the church and comes in the church and exits the church, only one-third, according to this parable, of those who attend church are actually saved. And that, that causes me to, I, am I saved? You know, I want to make sure that I'm in like Flint, so to speak, that, hey, you know, Lord, I just want to make sure I'm part of that one-third, if the numbers are true. And that also means that two-thirds of the people who attend church are not saved. Now, when you examine the parable like that, it should be sobering. Now, that doesn't mean in any given church, like you could look at this church and say, one-third of you are the only ones who are saved and two-thirds are not saved. It doesn't work like that. It works the people who come in and exit. Come in and exit. They don't remain. Or the person who goes from church to church to church to church never sets their roots deep, never really grows. They're preoccupied. They don't really ever get involved. They just kind of hang out, so to speak. And by the way, as I'm talking right now, I know this can be offensive. Some individual could be in here saying, you talking about me? You talking to me? No. Um, Look, the Holy Spirit can talk to you. I don't need to talk to you. I'm just... I'm just the messenger, you know. I'm, pass- I'm passionate about the message that's here. But I just want to make sure we understand it fully, that we dissect it. And, uh, is this possible that this is true? And I got a question from the youth group this last week, like who might be saved and who might not be saved and how you determine that. And I, say, I, I told them, I said, why would you want to be in a position to have doubt? Scripture says, talking about those leaders inside the church, those who have served well gain great assurance of their faith. If you serve, and by the way, that's serve Christ well. That doesn't mean serve the pastor well. That doesn't mean serve the deacons or the, the elders well. That's not what that means. It means serving Christ well. The whole motivation for doing what we do is Christ it's for no other reason whatsoever. And Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, that we too are, are to examine ourselves to see if, in fact, we are even in the faith. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> I looked up, I typed into all-knowing Google, and I asked all-knowing Google the test for being a Christian. What are the evidences that you would be a Christian? And you'd be surprised. What is out there? For instance, if you believe in the rapture, you are not a Christian. If you don't, yeah, oh yes, yes, this is, I'm not saying this is true, okay, just relax. It also said, if you don't hold that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible, then you are not a Christian. It held that if you don't believe in the six days of creation, you are not a Christian. 
by the way, I believe in the six days of creation, so I'm okay there. Some people believe in the time theory, you know, that it's extended out, and it, it's not contingent on your salvation if you believe that or not, and that's a controversial subject, and that's for another time, but you're not a Christian if you don't believe that. And also, this, this was the topper. If you don't discipline your children and have a good, strong belt, you're not a Christian. And I thought, what are you talking about? And at, at the end, well, I still scored with answering some of them wrong. I got like 70%. Good, you're a Christian, they said, but you need to work on these. And I, I thought, oh, you've got it wrong. You're missing the point. And then you go to some other websites that says, these are the proofs that you're a Christian. And they would be giving to the church. They would be praying. They would be reading your Bible. They would be going to Bible study. They would be giving to the poor. You know, Mormons do that. It doesn't make you a Christian just because you do those things. And I, I, I couldn't believe that most of what was spelled out in the Scripture as far as who is a Christian and who isn't a Christian is by what you do. And I thought, wait a second. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, you are saved by faith. You are saved by the grace of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. Now, if you're saved by faith through grace, and that is a gift, you will produce the works. It will happen. But the works don't save us, and I couldn't believe that all of these websites were saying, you have to have all these works. Then I ran across one out of about 20, and this is what they said. A Christian, therefore, is someone who recognizes that they have turned their backs on God, recognizes that out of his love for us, God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, and turns back to God and believes God's promise of forgiveness, putting their trust in Jesus Christ and his death on their behalf. They got it right. But it was one out of 20. And I thought, how sad how sad that we put this yoke on people and we're so worried about the works. And look, works, they're very important. I don't want to dismiss that. But it's trusting in Christ, abiding in the vine, having a relationship with Him. It's not the doing. Me going to Africa is not going to give me a little feather in my cap to get me saved. Far from it. Preaching to you guys and teaching you guys is not going to get me saved. It's me trusting in Christ for salvation. I want to do those other things because I am saved, just as you do the works for those who are out there, who help those who are in need of help, who truly need help, and you find out who those are. You take time, you expend money and capital to do it. That's it. You can tell the fruit is a result of you recognizing the humility that God has allowed to come into your life and my life and then he says, good, you're perfect, I can use you, you think you're nothing, great, that makes you something in my eyes, and therefore, I want you. It's the individual, and he gives that parenthetical thought, the one who would not hear, the one who would not see, the one who would not change their mind. 
And so when the word of God goes out, it's an offense to our flesh, but to our spirit, we soak it up. And that's why God calls us to crucify the flesh, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, who's going to get it right? No one. No one's going to get it right 100%. I remember Mike McIntosh, who was my pastor for years, he said, you know, when you become a believer, you're not going to become sinless, but you will sin less. Oh, okay. and, and that's like, okay, I get it, I get it. And we're going to always struggle up until the time we die. Why? Because we are tied to this body of flesh. That's why Paul cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? So going on with this, the point, the condensed intent of this particular parable is most will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only a few will find it. May all of us in here be part of those few. Now we go on to the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the, seed, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until they harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, the word weed here, they, they could not discern the difference between the wheat and the weed until it headed, until the fruit came out. It all looked the same. But the heads still looked similar. Now, we have some pictures to show you. This is a picture of wheat. See that? Now, when you see it when it's green... It's, it's kind of cool, the way the seeds match up in there. And when you see if one kernel of wheat is sown, how many kernels do you get back? 60, 30, or 100 times that which is sown. And that's what you see there. So one seed produced not only one stalk, but several stalks, and the harvest is abundant. That's why God says if the word of God falls in your heart and it returns 100-fold what was sown, that means all of the stocks that come up from one plant, you could have 100 seeds. That's great. You could have 60 seeds. That's great. You could have 30 seeds. That's wonderful. All of that is good. But then there's some that comes up that the enemy sows, and it looks just like wheat before it heads. It's called darnel. That's darnel. The grass plants look exactly the same until that fruit comes out. So when they're talking back then in the agrarian society of darnel as opposed to wheat, now look at the two together. Now you can see the difference. They're similar, but they're different. They're similar in the way that they spread up. And when God talks about the seed being sown and germinating, you wouldn't be able to tell that from the wheat which actually gets produced, although the seed that is being produced in the first parable is all God's word. 
but there are other seeds which are being sown amongst the wheat as well. So you get the understanding of the parable that the people would have understood back in the time of Jesus. Well, the harvesters said, do you want us to go and pull up while the, the wheat is still in the ground, still green, it hasn't dried out yet, do you want us to pull that up? And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Now, he gives an explanation of this in verse 36. He says, then he left the crowd and went to a house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." So the explanation says it's the end of the age. Now, are we at that point of harvesting? Not yet. So what point are we? We're the point where the enemy has sown the seed inside God's kingdom or in his church. In his church are those who are not wheat, who are darnel. If you go back to the first parable that's there you have the two classes of wheat that never germinated or excuse me they germinated but they never produced fruit there was never a harvest that came from them but also in this particular field are going to be weeds that means inside the church there are going to be individuals who are children of satan and they grow up together with those in the church who are believers And we never know who they are because God separates them at the end. Now, sometimes we find out who they are, and you find out how? By their fruit, if you are able to see some fruit. Because, see, these harvesters recognized some of those who were in the field that were darnel and not wheat, and they wanted to pull them out. But God said, no, let them dwell together. So sometimes we find out who they are inside the body of Christ. That means we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Am I Darnell or am I wheat? And see, these, these two parables right here, they're offensive. <clears throat> because if, if I was sitting where you are and you're up here where I am, I might turn to me who's up here and say, so what are you saying? You're saying I'm not saved. Is that what you're saying? Something like that. Or, you're saying I'm Darnell? What, I'm saved? The person next to me is probably not saved. But I'm saved. I'm the one that's doing okay. And God, he doesn't say react like that. We're supposed to humbly say, am I saved? I, let me examine it. Let me see if there's fruit in my life, if I'm walking in the Spirit, if I'm abiding in Christ, if I really have sold out my life. You ever hear of a radical right wing And I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about in the political, like, radical right-wing Republicans and radical left-wing Democrats, those type of things. Are are those people sold out? Well, 
the radical. Yeah. Imagine if you were a radical Christian. I, I heard this recently. You know, they go to that church, you know, they're really a radical Christian. What's a radical Christian? They wear their hair out to here like John the Baptist and have the leather belt and they eat grasshoppers. That's what they're... No, that's, that's not what a radical Christian is. A radical Christian loves like no other. A radical Christian dies to themselves and lives for others. That's a radical Christian. The radical Christian is not the one who sees the Shekinah glory of God coming down inside the sanctuary and the glitter that's falling all over there and laying on the graves. They're not the radical Christian. They're just... I'll be nice. They're just deceived. They're deceived. Not that they're not believers. They're just, you know, going the wrong way. And so God calls us to be gracious, but God calls us to be discerning. Those who might be in the midst of the body, who might be the Darnell, who are the children of Satan. And by the way, if you're a child of Satan, there's no good that can come from that. So that is the conclusion of the wheat and the weeds. There are those in the church that are not saved that grow up with those who are saved. Now going on the parable of the mustard seed, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet it grows, or when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now, I have a place that employs me. They have about five acres that once a year I go in and I have what's called a skid steer and a brush hog. And it takes down mustard that is, I want to say some of it's 10 feet tall. It is just huge. And the leaves on that mustard are huge. And it puts off. And you'll see it if you look closely. It, it's in our area too. It has little yellow leaves on it. Little yellow leaves and they keep on growing out until the plant dies. And just this little round ball that's up there. And there'll be several of them. And the plant's kind of lanky and that's a mustard plant that's out there. And I can testify that when I'm on that skid steer with that brush hog and I'm mowing that stuff down, and as soon as the brush hog hits it, you hear like the tree falling. You know, it comes down and it lands and it gets all chewed up. And the birds fly away because the birds are resting in the branches of these particular mustard plants. You could actually hide in a mustard field very easily because it is so, it's such a large herb which is out there. And that's where you get your French's mustard from is the mustard plant. And so Jesus said, the seed that comes from that, and by the way, I've taken some of those mustard pods, and they're very small, and you open them up, and the seeds on the inside are even smaller, and you go, where is that thing? I know it's in there somewhere. It is just tiny, as all tiny can be. And you plant that, and it's the greatest of the mustard, or of all the herbs which are out there in the garden. And so Jesus says, the word of God is like that. It starts with a little seed, but then it grows and its branches spread. Now, if you look at the first parable, there are these little critters there called birds. You also see that the birds come and land in the branches of the mustard. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret this. And I'll tell you the way that I think is correct. You need to listen to me and you'll be fine. <laughs> there are those who will say birds represent the evil one. 
Because most of the examples inside of Scripture you have are birds that, you know, just not good. Even in movies, you know, the raven, it's an evil bird, flies around. And the crow, you know, you're going to eat crow. It's a bitter-tasting meat. You don't want to eat that. It's just bad birds. Actually, they're kind of fun and exciting and intelligent birds. But anyhow, the birds are represented as evil or bad. Now, you have to ask yourself when you're trying to interpret what's going on, What about these birds? Are they always listed as evil? Especially, are there birds that land in branches that aren't evil inside of Scripture? I'm happy you asked. Daniel chapter 12, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 4, verse 10 says, this is Daniel speaking, These are the visions I saw while lying on my bed. I looked, and therefore before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top, touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. So you have this particular section in Scripture that deals with birds of the air living in the branches of this tree. Do you guys know who the tree is in Daniel? It's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, and he provided for all the birds. All the birds represent nations. Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 3 through 9 says, Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. The waters nourished it. Deep springs made it grow tall. Their streams flowed all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of abundant waters. All the birds of the air nested in its bows. All the beasts of the field gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. And so if you interpret the mustard with the birds landing in the branches, some would say that's the church and the evil one comes and lives inside the church, representative of those who are not saved. Now, if you interpreted that with the previous parable, you might say, well, yeah, I can see that kind of makes sense. But if you look at the Old Testament where birds represented nations, The word of God springs up and it causes all the nations of the earth to be blessed. Look at the United States. It is the one country on earth that the world calls Christian. It's a Christian nation. Now, it's debatable whether or not we are, but certainly our roots. We have our roots in the Judeo-Christian ethic, teaching the Bible. We believe in Jesus Christ. We don't believe in the God Allah Uh, That is from the Middle East. We don't believe in the pantheon of gods from India over there. We are considered the Christian nation. As the Christian nation, have more inventions and more people be blessed, been blessed because of our nation? Or is there another nation that has been more blessing or bring more blessings to the world than ours? The answer is no. Our nation has been singled out, has been blessed We have caused so many inventions from our nation to spread throughout the world. And as President Reagan said, a rising tide raises all boats. 
we have been blessed to have been used by God as a nation because we followed what he taught. And the birds of the air or the nations around the world come and lodge in its branches. They have been fed because of the, te- the technology that has come out of us. Now, are we exclusive? No, there are others, but there, are, have ne- there has never been a nation that has blessed the world so much as we have. You know, when I think about the hospitals and going for pain meds, and they didn't used to have pain meds like that. You wanted a tooth pulled? Stand still. Hold them down. We're going to cut this leg off? Well, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. You know, and, and the things that we have, the technology, the food, I mean, we are so blessed. I mean, I, I could lose a few pounds. I have so much food. I walk to the bread aisle and I'm overwhelmed by the bread in the supermarket. And you go to the other nations and they hardly have anything. You know, so we have been a blessing, but only because God has used us. And we're not exclusive. Any nation could be like that if they followed after God. The nation of Israel was like that for a time. God raised up Assyria. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar because his purposes were completed there. But no other nation... The other nations seek to bring those under the control of a despot, a ruler, somebody who wants to kill and destroy, just like Maduro down in Venezuela, destroying the trucks that are coming across with food for those who are starving. The man is wicked, he is evil. And there are those who are trying to support him, namely Cuba and Russia. Now what would those nations be doing helping such an evil guy? Well, you add it up for yourself. You know, this is not something that we have to be discerning about. It's right in front of our face. So this idea, I digress, back to the parable of the, parable of the uh, mustard seed and the plant that grows. The nations have been blessed because the gospel has gone out. The whole world has been blessed. Now, I want to give you a statistic here. Christianity, Islam, secular, non-religious, agnostic, atheist, and Hinduism how many people in the world believe Christianity is the largest religion in the world. 2.3 billion people believe and the world has been blessed because of it. And it was not like that before the coming of Christ. Islam, 1.8 billion people believe the secular non-religious 1.2 billion. Christianity has twice as many people as those who are non-religious or agnostic or atheist and Hinduism 1.1 billion. Christianity, if, if we would be influential, if we would abide in Christ, if we would show love like Christ did, we could win virtually the rest of the world. But even Gandhi said he would not follow Christ because of his followers. May we be a witness out there to those who are dying, those who are lost. May we take inventory of our lives and ask ourselves, are we really saved? Are there things in our lives that take precedent over abiding in Christ? where we just say, now, Jesus has to wait a little bit. I, I know he's there. I believe in him. I believe he's God. But I have all these things over here that I want to do, that I want to perform, that I want to participate in, that I want to be a part of, rather than being a part of Christ. Don't we realize that when we get to heaven, it's going to be so much better? And the Lord asks us to deny ourselves. I don't like to deny ourselves, like I said. I got a few pounds I got to lose. I, I don't deny myself. I want a donut. I get a donut, you know, whatever it is. I don't want to deny myself. I live in a prosperous country. Why should I do that? But the Lord calls us to do that. 
The Lord calls us to take all our cares, wants, needs, and desires, place them to the side. And if he wants us to have some free time, he'll give us the free time. And if we want to be involved in that stuff, well, that's just great. I'm not saying those things are bad or evil in and of themselves. It's where is our heart? Where are our hearts collectively? Are we following God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or just giving it a hurrah? You decide. You want to live for God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Just ask him to help you. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings which are there. We thank you for the insights that you give us that those who are in the kingdom are few, that your word has gone out and blessed the nations of the earth, that, Lord, there may be Darnell in the midst of the church. But, Father, you have called us to salvation. You have called us to be discerning. You have given us the tools to acquire that wisdom and to exercise it. We would ask, Lord, that you would help us to sell out, to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love you with all that heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Please move us in that direction, Lord. And where we fail, you extend to us your grace, and we thank you for that. And your mercy as well. We long for the day where that won't be an issue. Until then, Lord, help us to endure for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.